0: Stuff podcasts. Previously on the commune.
1: But he had all his women there and they're all his women and everything was at his at his beck and call.
2: Open showers, open toilets.
3: Yeah, that struck me as odd.
2: You're holding on, Barry. You're, you just can't let go. Yes, it was spiritual to just let your partner go.
4: This episode of The Commune contains strong language and references to sexual abuse. There's one that says couples, open day, sexuality, open relationships, antenatal, What? Tell me about these.
2: Right. Well, this is just a small selection of tapes out of a huge number because Bert was tape talking every at every Saturday afternoon meeting for uh-huh. for decades and more. Um, so yes, I just saved a selection. Covering different topics that he talked about.
4: Where, where was Bert? What was going on? Oh,
2: this was in the Centrepoint Lounge. Mm-hmm. All the members. We're with
4: Barry. Was she was one of the Centrepoint originals but who went on to become Bert Potter's well. chief propagandist.
2: There were never that many
4: visitors. And, and, and why were they? Were they, What were you doing with them? Or why recordings?
2: Well, I, as editing the magazine, used that as a basis of the talk for the magazine, Bert's part of the magazine.
4: And luckily for us, she kept loads of these tapes and she's happy for us to take a listen through this treasure trove. There's the number of the tapes uh, have had a former life as... Not only the Bert talks, but the random stuff that was on the tapes before they were taped over. Right, this one I noticed was over-recorded on Ludwig van Beethoven, Piano Concerto Number 4 and is 58. BBC Symphony Orchestra. It seems a bit of a shame to throw away a nice bit of uh, Beethoven and over a quarter of a bird.
5: Right now you can just check out that here and now you're in a very safe place. That nothing is likely to happen that can disturb you. That it's okay to let your eyes close and to go deeper down inside, just drifting off, and even if you go off into a very deep sleep, you'll take my voice down with a need of and
4: I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 3, The Girl on the Lawn. In the beginning, there was Bert, well, Herbert Thomas Potter, born at 11.05pm on May 20th, 1925, in Christchurch, to Dick and Fanny Potter. We know this because it's in the book written by Centrepoint member Len Oakes, a history of Centrepoint called Inside Centrepoint. The first page of the opening chapter features a picture of Bert with mutton chop sideburns and scraggly hair staring wistfully into the distance, eyes slightly raised towards the heavens. Oakes writes that Burt's father was scarred by World War I and disdained religion. Potter Sr. had a belt buckle taken from a German soldier that was inscribed with the words Gott mit uns, God with us, a souvenir that he kept as a caution against war and religion. Macabre mementos aside, there's nothing much in the book's opening chapter that jumps out. Bert Potter was a child of those awkward between-the-world-war years, a toddler during the Depression. There's nothing particularly radical, or overtly sexual for that matter, about young Bert. Nothing that you read and go, oh, that's why he went on to lead a sex commune. And, to his credit, when you listen to those tapes of him talking to the community, he never claims to have been touched by God or anything when he was young. He makes his upbringing sound quite ordinary. Despite his father's misgivings about religion, Bert was brought up a Baptist. I
5: was brought up as a Baptist.
4: Went along to Sunday school. I used
5: to toddle along to Baptist Sunday school regularly every Sunday. And...
4: Did okay at
5: high school. I went to school at Christchurch Tech. And I've often said, yeah, it's not a very prestigious school. It wasn't a bad school. I got along all
4: right. Joined the Air Force. Went into the Air Force and learning to kill people. Young Bert travelled overseas with the Air Force during World War II, but never actually saw combat. He came back home to New Zealand spent some time as a psychiatric nurse at a hospital near Nelson and then signed up to the army to join the occupation forces in post-war Japan. When he got back to New Zealand again, he took papers at university, studying a few different things like...
5: Political science. And... History at
4: university. And also going to teacher's college. Early school teaching days when I was a student going to one school. It was at teacher's college that he met his first wife and they married in 1951. Again, so far so normal even in the bedroom department. Bert would often say that as a young man, he was no Lothario.
5: I know when I was a teenager, I wasn't very successful with the ladies. Well, I I was in one way. They all liked me. They thought I was a fine guy. You know, I was
4: so pure and so safe. Newly married Bert bounced around a few jobs. He and his wife started a family, a son John and a daughter, and adopted two more children. The Potters moved to Auckland, and Bert discovered what he was really good at. Sales. He was really, really good at sales. Specifically, he became a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. And then he started dreaming of owning his own business. Burt Potter was about to hit the big time.
6: Oh, do you want to stop that clock? It's a, a road... Oh, the clock's OK. It's quite <laughs> hard. Hear. Well, yeah, well, the only trouble with that clock is it's a ringer, and it's like a... Darn... That's Mike Stickland. Mike Stickland. I'm at retirement age, but I'm still working, so um, it just keeps me busy.
4: So we've come to see Mike and his noisy clock because he knew Bert Potter long before Centrepoint came along.
6: Well, I first met Bert Potter when I joined his company, Pest Free Service. Yeah, that
4: was the name of Bert's pest control business, Pest Free Services.
6: And they specialised in borer treatment in old houses which meant that uh, they flooded the the timbers with uh, quite a And Bert was
4: doing very, very nicely out of it. Because according to Mike, Bert was impressive, especially at managing people. He taught me
6: uh, man management, the type of thing to do to be a good manager. And he was excellent at teaching that.
4: Bert had learnt new skills through the Dale Carnegie Group, which spread the gospel of self-improvement and the art of sales. You've probably heard of Carnegie through his books like How to Win Friends and Influence People. The techniques really worked for Bert and his business was booming. Bert would take his senior team on management courses and Mike recalls there would be no expense spared.
6: Lovely food and, you know, we're there for a couple of days overnight and uh, and they'd say, do you want to go out anywhere? Um, So he'd take us all out around the town once we'd finished up. (laughs) <laughs> no, know, uh, shocking place in K Road.
4: K Road, Karangahapi Road in Auckland, was, and still is, notorious for strip clubs and brothels and seedy joints.
6: When you're young, it's, it's another experience. I wouldn't go in it again, you know. And we've all had plenty to drink and we we're all enjoying ourselves, you know.
4: So Bert's out with his team at a slightly sleazy bar, but... Again, Mike says, "No, no sign of a hypersexualised Bert at this stage."
6: You know, he was a lot older than us, and uh, I know Richard once
4: he was falling asleep. <laughs> but about five years into his time working for Bert, Mike noticed a change in his boss. First of all,
6: it was a good change because he said, "I, I want to do something to help people." He said, um, I've been studying this new method of dealing with people, especially those that are having problems. So he said, I'm going to buy a house over the shore so that I can invite people in there and deal with them on the spot. And I thought, well, you know, that's good.
4: This is a big moment. The house on Auckland's North Shore that Mike's talking about was in Campbells Bay, a pretty wealthy suburb. It was the first place that Bert started dabbling in therapy. The house was right on the beach and huge. Lots of spare bedrooms. The basement was a therapy room with shagpile carpet with a hot pool and sauna nearby. People who'd come for therapy would stay over. And then
6: one day he came in and said, look, I'm going to study this in much greater depth, what I'm doing. So I'm going to America. Apparently there's a a place there where you can go and study this.
4: Sound familiar? Yep, what Bert was telling Mike about was the Esalen Institute, the place Bert had read about in that 1969 Playboy article. The place in California where they were experimenting with radical new ways of doing psychotherapy and spending time in hot tubs.
6: Well, he was away for quite a few months. We never saw him. And then suddenly one day he appeared and uh, he, I couldn't believe it. He came in his hair it was all down on his shoulders and he was wearing a big cloak and he was a sort of different
4: person what have
6: we got here You know,
4: I couldn't believe it the clean cut, short haired jacket and tie wearing businessman was undergoing a transformation Bert started to lose interest in the business and Mike says he started to hear rumours about what was going on in the Campbells Bay house, including a pretty relaxed attitude to sex
6: someone told me, I don't know who it was that he came in to work said oh well i had a good morning i met this woman on the way to the bathroom and he said so i fixed her up (laughs) and i thought and i had been told that and i thought i can't believe that but later on of course i was told that
4: that was the truth the campbell's bay house became the center of bert's world his marriage collapsed in 1972 and he became more and more involved in running group psychotherapy sessions. Bert was in his late 40s. He took up with a woman almost 25 years younger than him, but that new relationship didn't last long. Next, Bert moved from Campbell's Bay to the famous Gillies Avenue House, along with some of the people who would become the Centrepoint Originals, people like Keith, the GP and former missionary, and Bill, the psychiatrist, and his partner Annie. Remember, this is where Barry first met Bert. By now, Bert was becoming more and more interested in alternative communities, as well as the therapeutic stuff. In 1976, he went to India to visit the then-famous, later-infamous, Guru Rajneesh. People were flocking from around the world to Rajneesh's ashram, basically a kind of monastery, for yoga and meditation and teachings from the Great One.
2: The next phase, the screaming phase of dynamic meditation, feels like when you finally had an opportunity to throw a tantrum when you were a little kid.
4: That's what enlightenment is. This is Rajnish in a 1985 documentary. It is an
5: orgasmic experience with existence itself.
4: It was as if Bert was completing his studies in how to be a guru. Because once he returned to Auckland, momentum was building for this group of people to establish a commune. And Bert reckoned he was the man to lead it. Bert Potter, that master of man management who Mike had admired, was gone.
6: We, we lost sight of him. He, he went and uh, I heard that he had started this thing at centre point.
0: A top-notch piece of journalism. Compelling listening.
3: White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. Such a scary story. This podcast was a perfect way to go through the evidence and be completely baffled and terrified. Black Hands, the story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.
4: Did it feel like a place where one might find a boundary-busting free love commune. No.
0: (laughs) I mean, my view of the shore at the time was that it was a very kind of boring, conservative suburban area that was certainly not the kind of place where you would expect this hotbed of radicalism to be. This is Jenny Helen. Oh, all right, so I'm Jenny Helen. And I'm the publishing director of Allen and i New Zealand. But back in the 1980s, teacher. she was, was a teacher. English teacher at Long Bay College. It was my first job and I was in my mid-twenties.
4: Yeah, Jenny was my teacher, though I called her Ms Helen.
0: You were such a star in the English class, in my English class, seventh form, but quite naughty, um, a little bit cheeky and naughty at handing in your work and it was kind of
4: infuriating. <laughs> I hit deadlines, Katie <laughs> Anyway, we're really not here to talk about whether or not I used to hand my homework in on time. We wanted to talk to Jenny about, well, the vibe, really, of the 1980s.
0: People were experimenting. I mean, it was kind of the sexual revolution New Zealand was probably late 70s and into the 80s. There was kind of expectations on young women to be, you know sexually liberated but it was still a time when the mainstream people were you know getting married and you know the mainstream weren't weren't like that but there was definitely quite a bit of experimentation and I suppose Centrepoint was
4: seen as being at the forefront of that. So it was a time of change sexually and in relationships. Jenny had friends a couple who were in an open relationship But for them, it was more about... You know, breaking free of the shackles of society and,
0: you know, the demands of um, relationships with just one person, etc., rather than some kind of kinky sexual thing. You know, it's trying to explore, what are we doing with all these structures, you know? And a lot of people weren't getting married, they were living together, which was a Mm.
4: pretty new and radical concept in those days. The rules were shifting, but Jenny recognises that sexually, men still had the upper hand, the Me Too generation of today just wouldn't stand for what went on back then. I do think that young
0: women have taken the idea of feminism a major step forward. The Me Too generation, I think, has really absolutely stood up and said, stop sexualising us.
4: At Centrepoint in the 1980s, that's not a message Bert Potter was ready to hear. So we've already heard from a lot of people – Centrepoint pioneers, former Centrepoint teenagers, people who dealt with Centrepoint from the outside. But the person we could never talk to, of course, was Bert Potter himself. He died in 2012. But these tapes we've been playing kind of give us an insight into his thinking and personality, much more than if we'd just had to rely on people's recollections of him. Remember, these are the tapes Barry saved from Bert's Saturday talks at Centrepoint. All in all, she's still got about 30 hours of recordings. And actually listening to these tapes was sometimes weirdly nostalgic for me. Moments like Bert being snarky about famous New Zealand politicians. Now, where would you put Rob Muldoon? Worrying about nuclear war, just like I was back then.
5: They have enough nuclear warheads around the world today, scattered all over the place in nuclear submarines and planes that are constantly patrolling to literally blow this earth to pieces. It's
4: Even a review of the latest David Frost telly show. ...program
5: that David Frost put on, and uh, I found that some of the parts were quite disturbing.
4: Sometimes, when Burt burbles on, it's like being teleported back to the 1980s. I can almost imagine I'm in a room full of brown furnishings and there's some guy, maybe a neighbour my parents don't really like, Who's supposedly an enlightened modern man, but actually a bit sexist and creepy and a little bit racist. And he's holding forth with a pile of mansplaining based on what he's recently read in the New Zealand Herald, the Reader's Digest, and a couple of issues of New Scientist magazine.
5: Everything will be done for us. If you want to know anything, you just push the computer button. And it's getting like that now. They're getting the networks of these vast computers. Like
4: I said earlier, the tapes were recorded so Barry could use Bert's words in the Centrepoint magazine. But the magazine also captures the growing stability and confidence of the commune, as well as the scraps with local authorities, its days on the road, its legal troubles. We'll get to all that. And the magazine also tracked some of the human stories: Bert becoming a marriage celebrant, marital breakups and makeups, the complexities of open relationships. But even from very early on, some really important stories didn't make it into the commune's version of Pravda.
5: To allow yourself to let the clock go for a while so that you take the time to just be there.
4: So not everything that went on at Point made it into Barry's magazine, not by a long shot. For certain kinds of stories, you have to look elsewhere. We'd heard of this one particular moment that Barry witnessed, so we he asked her to tell us about it.
2: Yeah, um... I mean, it was just a totally shocking, you know, the visuals of it, the sounds of it, the physical dynamics of it, it just kind of blazoned in my memory. So I I think this must have been into the second year of the community, We'd had the Saturday meeting and after Bert had talked and then we'd all made a cup of coffee and were out on the deck. People were in caftans, women wore long swirly um, wraparound skirts and things. Um, People would be having drinks and pairing up and going off because the afternoon was free. So that was absolutely ritual that Bert and his partner would take somebody off sexually at that time. And in that sense, that was ho-hum. And then the scream. Bert and his partner walking down the lawn towards his Carcase hut um, with this girl both holding her hands between them. And then this mother running down the lawn after them screaming. And it was dawning on me, this is, she's just a, Child, you know, she's sort of twelve or thirteen, and then Bert's partner turning around and just, you know, Do you want your daughter to be locked off like you, um, just yelling and screaming at, her, and the mother just falling to the ground, and this tall partner standing over her, yelling, and then turning around and going off with Bert and other people around and sort of sounds of, you know, in my memory sounds of jeering and just turning to go inside and just shutting it off. I'm just not dealing with that.
4: So she's saying there's this girl on the lawn and she's being led away by the commune's leader and his partner to have sex and the girl's mother is screaming in protest, and the community's response is to jeer at the mother. And Barry herself, she's not jeering, but she's seen it too and taken it in, then literally turned her back on it and gone inside. This just seems
2: astonishing. It It's hard to explain to anyone, because the world has changed so fast and... and... Um, you know, were at the time of me too. Just how naive we were, or I was anyway. Own it for me. Growing up in a Presbyterian home, and then I trained as a teacher. There was no mention of childhood sexual abuse. I just did not have a concept in my head, or words about it. We were um, sort of in the 70s, yeah, the children can take their clothes off, you know, if we go to the beach they can swim naked if they want to. Um, But there was no hint of adults being interested in children sexually. It just wasn't something in my mind. Later, there was another
4: thing that Barry saw that threw her as well, making her suppress or at least push away any doubts she had about what Bert was up to. She was on the way to shower one day. So many things happened in those showers. Anyway, she passed Bert in an intense conversation with a mother and teenage girl. Barry ignored it, carried on, started having a shower,
2: and then... The mother arrived in the shower and the other shower beside me with tears pouring down her face and... My, my daughter's going off with Bert for her first sexual experience. Now, Barry really respected this woman,
4: so to her mind...
2: I was just stoked, well, if it's, if it's not okay, <laughs> why don't you do something about it? And if it is okay, what are you crying for? And just in total dilemma inside myself about it. But there still weren't any words and language for me.
4: Barry is confused, shaken even, but not doing anything about it. So what about the rest of the community? What are they thinking? Well, Barry then tells us another story that might help explain things.
2: There was another incident in the lounge that was hugely talked about in the community. At this stage, there was this psychotic young man in the community. And there were people in the lounge, apparently Bert was reading a book, I wasn't there. And just a crawling child um, crawled across the room. This young man was just lying on the floor in his box of shorts and he got an erection. And the father went over and grabbed the little child and Bert kind of lifted his head up from his book apparently and said, that's how parents condition their children and did a tirade at the dad. Then at the next meeting with all the community there, it came up again and the father spoke up and Bert just did his tirade thing, but also telling all the community as well, this is how parents condition their children and limit their children, and just making them into bad parents and just subdued the whole community. He was exerting his dominance. He was right and we were wrong.
4: By Barry's telling, Bert is gaslighting the community, convincing them that anyone who sees an issue with these sort of things, they're the one with the problem. They're too hung up. Children need to be raised in an environment of sexual freedom. And we've seen lots of other evidence to back up what Barry's telling us. Affidavits that set out sexually inappropriate attention towards children and teenagers in Centrepoint's early years. One from a woman who says she remembers seeing Bert emerge from a bedroom with a 12 year old girl. The woman says she felt sick about it. She confided in a senior member of the community, a woman, who told her it was she who had the problem, not Bert. She was told Imagine being taught by a loving older man who was experienced like Bert. How could this possibly be? How could grown adults say these words out loud, let alone think they were okay? Well, Truth be told, this stuff didn't come out of nowhere. There were some hair-raising attitudes to child sexuality floating around in those days.
2: If you don't
0: have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, the Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you.
4: It's informative, interesting, and suspenseful.
3: A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon, and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The Trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial. A remarkable
4: and disturbing tale. Well structured and told, it was both riveting and informative.
3: Black Hands, the story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.
1: So as somebody who was interested in social research, it seemed to me like it was a good opportunity to open up a Pandora's box and see what was inside.
4: This is Professor David Finkelhor.
1: So I'm David Finkelhor. I direct the Crimes Against Children research center at the University of New Hampshire, and I'm also professor of sociology here. I've been doing research on child maltreatment since 1978. Around that time,
4: this was a fairly new area of research.
1: I got into the field because I was very interested in issues related to child welfare and family quality, and there was news that was percolating into the um, culture about these cases of sexual abuse, and people didn't really know what to make of it, how frequently it occurred, how we could typify what these cases were all about. But child
4: sex wasn't just being looked at as an abuse issue. There were academics publishing work which asked, well, actually, is it always necessarily abusive? That kind of angle, David points out.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it was very controversial then.
4: So it wasn't exactly mainstream, but still there were some people... ...kind of
1: questioning whether attitudes and laws about um, sexual relationships between adults and children, whether criminal laws needed to be revisited. Look, we need to be clear. On the issue of adults having sexual relationship with children, the consensus has solidified so that there aren't people in public who are with any uh, scientific credibility or treating those as potentially positive relationships.
4: But back then, there were even books being published, which if you look at today, you go, what? Books like one from 1981 called Children and Sex, a collection of essays edited by American academics Larry Constantine and Floyd Martinson. A number of these essays were legitimate academic research where people would ask things like, do we know that adult-child relationships are harmful? How are they harmful? What is the evidence? For instance, there's even a paper from David Finkelhor in there, though when we spoke to him, he couldn't remember much about this book that happened to contain one of his articles. That's going back into the mists of uh, memory for me. David can't remember what was published, but I got a copy of the book from a New Zealand university library. And his piece in there reads like a rigorous work of science, looking at the effects of sibling incest. And it concludes, yeah, sibling incest is harmful. But there are contributions from other authors that are far less, shall we say, damning of sexual practices that would nowadays be condemned, including between adults and children. And let's look at what else was happening in the culture around this time. Actress and model Brooke Shields had recently been photographed for a magazine from the publishers of Playboy. In the picture, she's smeared in oil, standing in a bathtub, full frontal nudity in a porn mag. When the photo was taken, she was ten years old. So, yeah, there is cover for some of the ideas about children and sex that are being discussed at Centrepoint, from some academics from the darker corners, the entertainment world, from the wider culture. And at point, Bert is gaslighting everyone and people are turning a blind eye to what's happening to young girls. Yeah, no. But not everyone is buying what Bert's selling. Yeah, yes, that absolute power he ruled. That's Robert, that's why, one of those Robert pioneers. One who that. loves the therapy but is getting a bit hacked off with Bert. Chainsaws, all that. You can probably tell by now that Robert's the kind of guy who goes with his gut. And there's something that he witnesses that puts him over the edge. One day, he's just had a shower in those infamous open showers, and Bert's there too.
6: And I just hopped out of the shower, it's all in the open. And he's standing to one side, talking to a couple who were there. I can't, I don't even know who they were. Um, and saying, Yes, little so and so, we're up in the in our place and and, it was all good. You know, she wanted to have sex. This is a two and a half year old.
4: Robert says Bert then explicitly described what he'd done with the girl. Robert is disgusted. She was two and a half years old. So I went straight back to the father. And I said, have you heard this? He says,
3: no. And that was it.
4: That was episode three of The Commune, a staff production. It was written, researched, produced and presented by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell of DigiCarrick, music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash
3: An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White Silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.